Recently, Sayadaw has started talking about um, what he calls the three yogi jobs that we need to do here in our practice. And he says they're very simple, these three yogi jobs, but he's come up with these three yogi jobs because um, students have come to him and said, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> what am I supposed to do? I mean, there's not a lot of instruction, although, as you see, I've been talking a lot, but um, in terms of... <laughs> a lot of what we offer is the view of the perspective of the practice. Um, and something else I often says is, um, actually, nothing I say is anything to do it's more just information that goes into the mix, and you allow that information to work on you. So you don't actually have to do much of what I'm saying here. If it comes out sounding like an instruction, it's just because I haven't gotten my mind around rephrasing my language yet. <laughs> it's, it's hard to reframe the language that way. And even when Sayadaw speaks, he, he says, well, try this or do that. You know, so I, I see that even he doesn't really completely embody it in his language, but I do, I do believe that, that he's serious about this. I mean, there have been times where I've come to him and said something. He says, well, don't try to do that. <laughs> Just let it, let it operate in your mind. So a lot of what we talk about is wisdom, and that wisdom begins to inform our, uh, our practice. And so um, there's not a lot to do, but the, the, the Sayadaw says there's three yogi jobs, three things that we need to, to keep in mind. One is right view. So bringing right view, having right view, exploring right view, cultivating right view. The second is be mindful. <laughs> know what's happening for yourself in the present moment. And the third is um, sustain mindfulness or work to sustain mindfulness or learn what it means to sustain mindfulness. Um, again, you know, this, this sounds like an instruction, do sustaining mindfulness, but it's more beginning to experience and explore and understand what is this mindfulness and how can we begin to see it sustaining, getting familiar with that, that, the very familiarity with mindfulness and with knowing what it's like for mindfulness to sustain, it, sustain itself will cultivate that. And there are some ways to encourage that. And I'll talk more about that in the coming days. But of these three yogi jobs, today I'd like to talk a little bit more about right view. Practical right view. Pr- right view as it is in our practice here. One thing that Sayadaw says, and this actually relates to the other yogi jobs, um, he says that steadiness of mind comes with right view. That that right view is really the cause and support for the mind being steady. He says it's not concentration, although I see that concentration does support that, but I think what he might say is that right view is what allows us to become concentrated. So he he, uh, looks at right view as being the the ground out of which stability grows. And if you think about it, what what right view is, um, we can think of it as a skillful way of seeing our experience that allows us to be balanced about whatever's happening. And that's the definition of right attitude that Sayadaw talks about. So when that right attitude is present, the mind is balanced and non-reactive. It's not pulled out of the present moment by thoughts or aversion or wanting. The presence of greed, aversion, and delusion is what Uh, sends us off kilter, out of balance. The absence of greed, aversion, and delusion in one definition 
of right view, the classic definition of right view, that is realized right view when there is the absence of greed, the absence of aversion, the absence of delusion. That's one definition for a fully realized mind, a definition for Nibbana, complete enlightenment. So there's a, a, a way of understanding right view as this balance of mind, and that as we cultivate right view, our mind naturally becomes more balanced. So there's some classic ways of understanding right view. Uh, I'll just mention these very briefly and then hope that I weave through the rest of this talk ways that these classic aspects of right view are related to how we're practicing here. So two of the classic definitions of right view are understanding the Four Noble Truths, the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of the cessation of suffering, and the truth of the path leading to the cessation of suffering. And I see this aspect of right view as being, view as being intimately connected with the act- actions the Buddha suggested we take with each of these um, truths. The truth of suffering is to be understood, the truth of the cause of suffering is to be let go of, the truth of cessation of suffering to be realized, the truth of the path leading to the cessation of suffering to be cultivated. So it's understood that this um, this right view functions in, in different ways at different times in our practice. That Right view, as a factor of the Eightfold Path, is the beginning of the Eightfold Path. It starts the path. At the beginning of the path, it cannot be the fully realized right view. It's more of what I was talking about the other day, borrowed right view. It's the, the right view of, um, of having information, working with that information, reflecting on that information. So initially, right view of these Four Noble Truths is more of a concept, more of an understanding of thoughtfulness, of of intellect. And then as we um, practice exploring our experience through that perspective, we begin to understand those truths directly, so that it's no longer a truth of concept, it's a truth of of direct experience, a a truth of how we uh, relate to the world. Not a truth of thought or concept, but just a truth of our being. And that's the way right view um, comes to fulfillment. We start by practicing with the concepts, exploring our experience through those perspectives. And over time, we begin to actually see things directly and have the understanding uh, come through our direct experience. So this is um, a theme about right view, that it has these different aspects to it, this aspect of concept and intellect and understanding and the aspect of direct experience. Another uh, classic definition of right view is the understanding of karma, the the, uh, truth that actions have consequences, that our uh, choices, the motivations behind our choices influence how our lives unfold, whether we are happy or unhappy, whether we suffer or feel at ease. So these two classic definitions of right view. In our practice here, um, a lot of the right view that Sayadaw talks about, I see as coming from a teaching from the Buddha, uh, two words that the Buddha uses, yata bhuta. Um, things as they are is one way this term is translated, yata bhuta. It's used a lot of places in the suttas, although it's kind of an invisible phrase because um, when you're reading the translations of the suttas, it'll say something like, Nabiku understands as it actually is the body. Nabiku understands as it actually is thoughts and perceptions. That as it actually is is the word yata bhuta. 
And it's a lot of places in the suttas. It's kind of imbued throughout the suttas. So it's a pretty important um, a concept. You know, what does it mean as it actually is? And I see a lot of what Sayadaw teaches as being different perspectives on this understanding of what is as it actually is mean. So I'd like to explore some of these perspectives. And the first one that uh, Sayada talks about a lot is objects are just objects. The objects in our experience, there's just sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, things happening in the mind. There's six sense doors and objects arising at the six sense doors. There's uh, no particularly better object than any other object in terms of cultivating mindfulness. From the perspective of the practice, any object will do. So, um, there's no better experience for you to be cultivating mindfulness than the one that's happening right now. Today in one of the groups, somebody said that they were just beginning to, re- they were beginning to really get this, this fact of, you know, often when we come into mindfulness, um, it's something like, oh, well, I'm not supposed to be experiencing frustration or, or anger or boredom or depression or sleepiness. I'm supposed to be experiencing something else, so let me try to find that something else or figure out how to get my mind to go to that something else. What are the things I need to do to get my mind there? Sleepiness, anger, depression, frustration, boredom, they're all just objects, equal to any other object. There's no need to have the sense that we have to find some other object that would be better for us to cultivate mindfulness with. We wake up into awareness, And there you are. You're already aware, already with an object. That's good enough. And, of course, um, at times, certain objects tend to uh, kind of really throw us off balance. And so I was talking this morning about some things that we may need to take some action with when some objects just, you know, kind of grab us and, like, whip us around. It's really our mind that's doing that, actually. You know, um, objects can't really disturb us. You know, there's sound happening, and the chipmunk or the, the squirrel is chattering away, and we're going, you know, frustration or aversion to the sound of the, of the squirrel. It's not the squirrel that's bothering you. It's not the sound that's bothering you. It's your mind. The mind is bothering. The mind is doing the bothering. The sound itself is just a sound. And so this understanding, an object is just an object, it begins to cultivate um, a non-judgmental awareness. It begins to help to support this sense of it doesn't matter what's happening. What matters is the awareness and the cultivation of right attitude in that awareness. The attitude is what's important. So the objects are just objects. We need to look at our relationship to those objects. That's where the bothering, the disturbance happens, is in our attitude, in our relationship to experience. So we meet things as they are. Objects are just objects. That's a kind of a, in a way, a kind of a... um, Another way to phrase things as they are. Just objects are just objects. Things are just happening. No thing better than any other. Things as they are. That's one translation of Yata Bhutta. So we meet the truth of this moment. We meet the Dhamma, we meet the Dharma in our experience. Someone said this morning, um, 
that this practice seems like a practice of brutal honesty. And that there's a lot of truth to that, that we are opening our minds to see the ways that that we don't have right view, that we uh, reject things as they are, that we push them away, we hold on to them. And the very seeing of that takes a, a real willingness to be completely and utterly honest with ourselves. Another way that um, Sayadaw talks about right view in our practice, and this is, he uses this a lot, um, I'll start with a little bit different languaging than he usually uses. Objects are an effect. There's causes and effects. Objects are the consequences of causes. They are, they are uh, based on causes and conditions. What we are experiencing is based on our past experience, our past choices, There's many, many different things that come into the arising of what's happening in this moment. What's happening in this moment is pretty much the only thing that could be happening based on all of the conditions that you've experienced, all of the choices that you've made. So causes and conditions, sometimes people ask, you know, a little bit, what what are causes and conditions? What do you mean by that? I use that phrase a lot, causes and conditions. So I think about, I, I kind of break it into two parts. Conditions I think about as things that have happened, um, that have happened in the past or, or are the conditions of the environment. So things things are conditions. Um, our history, you know, how we were raised, how our parents treated us, where our teacher put us in the classroom when we were in first grade, um, what kind of friends we had, all kinds of our kind of our historical, what we call conditioning, right? We talk about that, we use that word. That's one aspect of conditions, is this kind of our historical um, um, upbringing, the way we were, were related, we w- the way we were related to, the way we were trained, all of that is part of conditions. Our genetic tendencies are part of conditions. That you know, what our genes are, you know, the, the whether or not we can eat dairy or soy or not, you know, that's con- part of our conditions. That's. It's conditions. It's our genetic disposition. It's not personal. It's just a part of who we are. And this is this is not karma. I want to make that clear. You know, the 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 Buddha actually said that not everything is a result of of uh, of karma, and certain bodily conditions. He said are just you know they're just bodily conditions. So the genetic tendencies are but they are part of our conditions right I mean the fact that we can't eat dairy or soy may impact us here on this retreat in that we can't have the meal for instance and then we may react to that so the conditions of our genetics comes into play in terms of how we react and respond and that in turn is our karma that we react or uh have greed or aversion around these uh, genetic tendencies and what the conditions are in the environment. So that's another condition, is the, is the conditions of the environment. So what kind of food is being served? What the weather's like? Is it cold? Is it hot? Is it sunny? Is it raining? Um, the past conditions of weather. All of this is conditions. Causes, I like to think, as I talked about this morning, that What's happening in the present moment is influenced by all of these conditions. You know, what, what's happening in the present moment, you know, going up and having your meal is influenced by whether your body can digest the food that's offered and what the food is. Those are conditions. The cause of whether or not you suffer around that 
whether you resist or um, find yourself really excited about the meal and frustrated that, oh no, there's no more cantaloupe left, you know, it's gone, you know, then you suffer around that excitement. So the cause of that suffering is something happening in the present moment. There is a reactivity, a clinging, a grasping, a holding, a craving that's happening right now. The causes, I mean the conditions have been set into place in the past for what's happening right now. But the causes of suffering are happening right now. The actual cause in this moment is something that's happening right now. And this is actually really good news because it means that we can begin to uh, watch this process of how the mind grasps, resists, holds on to experience in the moment. And the mind can begin to let it go. If it were just lockstep that we suffered aversion when we were presented with food we couldn't eat, it would be hopeless. We would be doomed to suffer for the rest of our lives. It's not that way. The, that suffering is happening because of something going on in our own minds, and we have a choice about that. Now, it takes making that choice conscious to be able to see that. So, objects, what's coming up in our experience, are based on these causes and conditions. So the fact that we have disappointment arise when the meal is tofu, you know, that object of disappointment is based on causes and conditions. So, this understanding that all objects are based on causes and conditions, to me, this is very helpful for um, having a little bit more ease around what's happening. This is, what's happening, what's coming up is just a product of causes and conditions. It's, it's like, of course I'm feeling this way. Every choice that I've made in the past has been um, kind of guiding me down this path to feel this disappointment. What else could I be experiencing right now? It's already arisen, actually. It's already happened. So it's already there. (laughs) It's not like you can change that. It's already there. It's already an object. And it is a result of causes and conditions. It's not personal. It's just nature. And this is the way Sayadaw phrases this. This is nature. Objects are nature. And I like this phrasing. I actually use this. I think I said this the other day. I use this a lot in my practice just to remind myself this is nature. What's happening right now is a a result of causes and conditions. The fact that it has arisen is no different than a tree growing. The seeds have been planted in the past for this tree to grow, and here it is right now. So for me, this reflection, using this reflection, this is nature, recognizing objects are a result of causes and conditions, makes it easier to be present with the experience. It helps me to take it less personally. So you could explore that in your experience. Another translation of this term, yatabhuta, relates to this understanding of everything being a result of causes and conditions. This translation is, things as they have come to be. Pointing to the uh, conditional nature that there is a coming to be of things. So this is related to the teaching of karma. So this is related to that classical understanding of karma, that um, experience is playing itself out, partly as a result of these 
variety of conditions of our past, our history, our upbringing, but largely our reaction of how we are meeting experience, the feeling of our experience, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant to us in this moment, is largely a result of our choices. Our choices of the past have come together to uh, put us into this moment. And, you know, in a kind of a, a simple way of looking at it, you know, if you have not necessarily, when we say the word choice, often we're thinking of a conscious choice, and choice is often not conscious. There are choices made and they are made unconsciously, they are made by habits and tendencies and patterns that we have practiced over our lives. I've practiced a lot of anger in my life. That tendency has been very strong for me. When I meet some kind of new experience, because the mind has practiced anger so much, the tendency when I meet a new experience is to go into that situation and look for what's wrong with it. It's just what I've practiced. So we all have this set of choices that we've made in the past. We've all practiced things unconsciously, but there have been choices made that have practiced, in a way they've practiced us. You know, the, these these tendencies have practiced us. So we, um, having having practiced aversion a lot in my life, when I meet something, aversion is really close to the surface. So um, this is related to the understanding of karma, the choices that we've made in our lives, the the choosing to act out of aversion cultivates aversion, tends to make us inclined towards aversion. We act out of greed, out of wanting. It tends to make us act that way more often. So this is, this is the law of karma. When we act out of greed, aversion, or delusion, it tends to lead us to more greed, aversion, and delusion, leading us into struggle, into suffering. We can begin to start to choose, and this is an aspect of right view, to start to choose to noticing these tendencies. As, as mindfulness gets stronger, so this yogi job of paying attention to experience and trying to sustain experience, as, as mindfulness gets stronger, we're able to see these choices. We're able to watch ourselves, watch these choices coming up. It's not so much that we're doing it. It's habit. You know, it's a lot of habit from the past. You know, meet this experience and there's the aversion right at the surface. And if action is going to be taken and you're not mindful, it'll probably be taken out of that aversive tendency or greedy tendency or deluded tendency, whatever you tend to, to gravitate to. When mindfulness is present, we can actually see this unfolding. And there can then be a choice to not act on that motivation. The teaching of karma then teaches that when we act out of non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, or to put it more positively, we act out of wholesome tendencies, generosity, kindness, wisdom. That leads us more towards happiness. So causes and conditions Objects are nature. Objects are a result of causes and conditions. This is another aspect of right view. A third piece that I've added, I I haven't actually heard Sayadaw directly speak to this, but it came to my mind as I was um, reviewing these ways that Sayadaw talks about right view. And this is that Objects are not things. Objects are, don't have an inherent uh, existence to them. They are a completely dynamic, changing process. So, you know, we can think about, you know, this, this talking about, well, objects are a result of causes and conditions. Objects are an effect 
we could think about that in terms of an object being a thing. You know, this, this cause has produced this thing to happen. Anger, this thing of anger is happening right now. Anger is not a thing, it's a process. It's a, a flux of changing experience that is never the same even for an instant. So this is another aspect of right view. This points to the understanding of the ephemerality of experience, the coreless nature, the, the not-self nature of, ex- of experience, the process nature of experience. Sayadaw said at the beginning of this retreat that I just sat on, um, in April at IMS, he came to IMS for two weeks and I was there. In his opening talk, he said, paraphrased, you are here to know what is happening as it is. As it is, yatabuta. You are here to know what's happening as it is. You're not trying to calm the mind, make the mind happier, or to achieve or accomplish anything. So whether experience is pleasant, unpleasant, a challenge, a struggle, easeful, calm, peaceful, our practice is to know it as it is. The yogi jobs of wise view, being mindful, sustaining mindfulness, help us to this, help us to know what is happening as it is. This morning I talked about different ways to support investigating difficult states of mind. Um, Essentially, ways to support knowing them as they are, without resistance, without pushing them away. So this, the practice of investigation of our experience, (laughs) in particular difficult states, to me relates to the First Noble Truth and the um, task of the First Noble Truth, understand dukkha. That's a lot of our practice. How can we explore, investigate experience to understand dukkha, to understand it? Not to get rid of it, not to change it, not to fix it, to understand it. The understanding transforms. The understanding allows things to shift and change in ways that you may have no idea about how they may shift and change. You may have some idea that you want this thing to go away so that you could be more relaxed or more peaceful, or at least not having that thing in your environment. The transformations that can happen through the understanding can shift you in ways that you would have no even idea of going that direction. So opening our minds to the possibility that transformation can happen in ways that we might not even conceive of. So this understanding of dukkha, understanding, investigating, exploring our suffering, is one of the ways that we help right view to grow. So this is, this is an aspect of uh, cultivating right view, developing right view to, to practice understanding suffering. This morning, in talking about working with difficult states, I brought in some things that I want to highlight here um, again. Um, as I said earlier, initially right view in practice is Um, inclining towards a perspective. So using the concepts of right view. Um, So initially, in working with bringing right view in, we borrow wisdom. And there's some, some of these uh, perspectives that I'm talking about can be used. So objects are just objects. This is some borrowed wisdom we can using these, dropping these in as reflections in our practice can help us to um, 
come to a little more balance, have a little more ease around what's happening, borrowing the right view to support uh, the investigation. So objects are just objects. Thoughts are just thoughts. This is nature. This is causes and conditions. Everything's a process. We can, we can bring these in as reflections. What's important is not the actual words that I've used here. Some of these are Sayadaw's words. Some of these are mine that I've found on my own. Um, find language that works for you. Ways to express this view that resonates for you. These, these words aren't, aren't magic. The, the, the key towards right view, bringing it in as reflection, is for you to understand how you're reflecting on it. So bringing your own language in. There's a few states that I didn't have a chance to talk about this morning that I'd like to just mention briefly because they tend to block right view. Um, Sleepiness and restlessness can get in our way, especially sleepiness, I think. Um, I talked about this in both of the groups today, but I think it's important enough to, to cover it again. So the half of you have heard this. I hope you'll be patient with this. Um, you know, with sleepiness, there are times when we think we cannot be aware of it. You know, it's like um, we have the thought, I'm too sleepy to be mindful. Um, that very thought, I'm too sleepy to be mindful, embodies wrong view and delusion. Because the very way you can even have that thought is to be mindful, to be aware that you are sleepy. So the very statement embodies a contradiction. I'm too sleepy to be mindful. You're already mindful in knowing that. Only you may have missed that. (laughs) You've leapt onto that idea and believed it. So it is possible to be mindful while when sleepy. It's possible. And I'll just talk about this really briefly. One of the keys around it is to notice your relationship to sleepiness. Are you resisting it? Are you pushing it away? If you're resisting sleepiness, it's likely to feel really, really unpleasant. If you can let go of that resistance, if you can have the idea, sleepiness is just an object. No better or worse than any other object. So no need to resist it. If you let go of resistance to sleepiness, you'll probably find that the experience is pleasant. Really pleasant, in fact. That uh, very pleasantness, you know, connecting with that experience of the actual feeling of sleepiness, which has pleasantness, pleasant body sensations, pleasant mental sensations, can be a little bit of a an energizing factor in the mind, and you may be able to stay with the experience of sleepiness, just noticing the pleasantness of it. And then you may, at some point, drop off. If you're sitting up without support in the back, you'll probably drop forward and that will wake you up. And so then all you need to do is just thank your body for waking you up and do it again. You know, there's no problem. Sleepiness doesn't have to be a problem. So play with, see if you can play with exploring that as simply an object. That's all it is. It's just an object. One of my friends put a sign on his dorm room door, leaving the dorm room door. Um, Don't create problems. This is kind of an example of creating a problem, of resisting sleepiness. You know, it creates a problem where there isn't one. We do this a lot. We create problems. We resist what's happening. We resist things as they are. Then restlessness also being um, a state of mind that, that kind of can block right view in a way. Their um, mind is, feels like it's just jumping everywhere, can't settle on anything, 
And again, it can feel like I can't be mindful while my mind is in this agitated state. That we, so we have a belief or a view that's in the way of being simply mindful of the mind being agitated. I often, um, when I notice the restless tendency of mind, I kind of allow the experience to get really big. For me, this has been helpful because I tend to have a zeroing in, narrowing focus kind of mind. It's like, oh, restlessness. Oh, let me find the restlessness. And it's like putting the restlessness in a pressure cooker. You know, it's like, and then it gets really nuts. So let that restlessness get big. Let it get as big as the room. That can feel kind of mentally frightening at first. It's like, well, if I let it get really big, won't it like, you know, take over? Well, actually, it gets more dispersed then much easier to be with if you just let it get get as big as the valley here just let it grow and another way that I've worked with this is to just see if I can connect with the energetic quality of restlessness on one recent uh, retreat I was there was a tremendous amount of energy in the body that the, the body was just kind of overwhelmed with this restless energy And in opening to it, in opening to that experience, I had this image, this image came to my mind that I had um, jumped onto the back of a whale and I was just riding this whale, this powerful, huge being, you know, just swimming at full tilt through the ocean. And I was just, you know, hanging onto the back of this whale, riding this whale. That was the, the way the energy felt. It was just so powerful. But having that sense of being a whale rider actually allowed me to just be with that experience. This is also when I came up with that languaging around being with. Just be with this experience. Not try to change it. Not try to look at it from a distance. Just be with it. Ride that whale. Another way to encourage the growth of right view is by um, getting interested in how awareness impacts your the way you perceive experience. So what do I mean by that? Does your experience seem different to you when you're mindful than when you're not mindful. So for instance, um, a classic example around this is, is looking at pain. When we're you know, not mindful of pain, often the reactivity is just growing. And when we can bring our mindfulness to the reactivity, Actually, the other day, just last night, I was experiencing pain in my back while sitting here. And at some point, I recognized, yeah, I was noticing the pain. I noticed that the pain was there. And I was kind of like, oh, it's okay. I'm okay with that. You know, there was, a, there was this part of my mind that was like, yeah, it's okay. It's not a problem. I know how to be with pain. Yeah, yeah, I know how to be with pain. And there was some, um, at some point, after hanging out with this for a while, I recognized that there was kind of a way that my mind had gone into this separate and ignore mode around the pain. There was this, it was not a great kind of repression, but there was a subtle repression happening around the pain. It's very subtle. And when that became clear that I, I, I hadn't seen the pain, that I hadn't seen that repression, I thought I was just, oh yeah, things as they are, there's pain, yeah, things as they are. But there was repression, repression happening, ignoring happening. So delusion was happening that I hadn't quite seen. And then that became more uh, clear to me. And as that unfolded, the, the whole experience shifted. And I realized in that shift that the body and mind had been in a suffering state. And I hadn't really seen that. And in that shift, seeing that, the suffering of that repression fell away. And there was just the pain, the the kind of the arising of, oh, not liking that. And it was just a much more dynamic experience. It's 
kind of like the mind had tried to lock down on the pain. Let's put that in lockdown. Let's keep it under control. And um, it, it actually made the suffering worse than it was to just be with the pain, be with the resistance, be with what was happening naturally. So the experience of awareness shifted, that the awareness of the experience shifted the experience, shifted the perception. The pain was actually no longer so um, difficult. It didn't feel like it needed to be locked down anymore. So we can begin to recognize how does being mindful, being aware, impact our experience? This is noticing the causes and conditions, the the impact of the practice itself. And you've all noticed this kind of thing, how being mindful provides a sense of space, of ease around experience. That's noticing. I mean, if you can actually take in, oh, there's a little bit of space here because of the mindfulness. Now, why do this? Why actually acknowledge how mindfulness shifts our perception around experience? Because it helps us to appreciate the value of mindfulness. (coughs) We begin to see that the mindfulness creates the conditions for us to suffer less. When we appreciate the value of something, we take care of it. We encourage it. We support its growth. Sayadaw gives a, um, an analogy about this. He says, you know, we all, suppose you had a big pile of money, you know. We know the value of money. We would probably be really interested in taking care of it, knowing how much there was, where we're spending it, where it's kept, how to make it grow. We would be very interested in that because we know and appreciate the value of money. The value of mindfulness is way greater than the value of money. But we don't actually connect with that value and appreciate that value. So this is another way to support right view. Begin to appreciate how mindfulness supports you. This... um, This may also be by reflecting on how are you noticing or are you noticing the non-arising of difficulty, the non-arising of defilement. Now this is mostly seen through understanding rather than through direct experience. But we can know you know, this situation, we can see, and I'm sure mo- many of you have seen this kind of thing. You, you walk into a situation where there's stuff happening that five years ago, had you, had you uh, walked into that situation, you would have been reacting left and right, and you find yourself at ease, balanced around the situation. Take in the fact that your practice has supported you. Appreciate the, the value of mindfulness. It's so easy to overlook the non-arising of defilements. <laughs> really easy. They're not arising. It's really easy to ignore them. Um, but it's very helpful to acknowledge when, uh, when we can recognize how practice is supporting us in this way. So another way to encourage right view, and just in the interest of completeness, I'll mention this also. Um, I won't talk about it much because I've already talked about it. And that is to um, notice wrong view. (laughs) You know, checking the attitude, noticing wrong view. This is the way to move to right view. Having um, the willingness to recognize, oh yeah, this, de- de- uh, this aversion is happening, this aversion is coming up, this wrong view is coming up. The willingness to, to recognize that, be with it, begins to move us in the direction of right view. As I said, it moves the, the, um, the view from being in our operating tendencies 
to being just simply another object. Essentially wrong view, becoming an object, it's just another object. Objects are objects. And no different than any other object. And then we check in, and what's my relationship to that? Continually purifying, exploring, investigating the relationship to the objects. So as our understanding develops through this practice, so, you know, borrowing right view, exploring our experience, growing right view through the practice of investigation. As the understanding develops, we, we have insights of our own. You know, we begin to um, recognize and understand these, these truths for ourselves. So we begin to understand them in our own experience. And as we have these experiences of insight, as, as insight comes for us, there's a way that then it becomes our own instead of being borrowed. There's a way that we deeply understand that view. We deeply understand it. Now, we may not always be able to function from that place of deep understanding. I've seen this in my own experience a lot that, you know, I'm, I'm experiencing things as they are. You know, it's like, wow, this is so obvious. How can I not see it? How can I not see that this is the way, you know, that this is the truth. And then three minutes later, it's like, well, it wasn't so obvious because it's gone now and I have no clue how to get back there. How can I see, see things in that way again? But there is a transformation that happens. There's an understanding that happens in that shift when in that moment we begin to see things in a different perspective. And it is, it seems so obvious Right view seems so obvious when we are experiencing it. We can, when we have our own experiences like that, sometimes we can create our own language. And I talked about this earlier, finding the language that resonates with you. This is really where we can, can come up with our own language. You know, however that insight manifests for you, allow yourself to reflect on it a little bit. Not a lot, but enough to kind of get the gist of the insight. And that gist may support you at times when your mind is less balanced. So we can come up with our own phrases of wisdom, wisdom reflections that we can bring to bear on our experience. So I'll give you an example from... um, my a, a, a recent retreat. This I did spent two weeks with Tejania and six weeks at IMS in the in the um, winter. So I've had some recent retreat experiences, and this comes from one of those. Um, I was practicing with looking at objects, just noticing objects coming up, and and there was a lot of complication in the objects. You know, it's like wow, you know, what's coming up? This is really complicated. You know. The mind felt pretty complicated. And in that recognition of complication, borrowed wisdom popped into my mind, which, you know, this is the way Saito Tejaniya's teachings work, you know. You read, you reflect, you listen to talks, you hear things. The borrowed wisdom that popped into my mind was, the meditating mind is simple, not complicated. So that popped into my mind. And fortunately, my mind didn't at that point then think, well, obviously this experience is wrong, this complicated experience is wrong, and I've got to change it somehow. What popped into my mind next was, if it's complicated, it's an object. So that took it out of the mind being complicated to just, oh, there's complication happening. That's all. Nothing to... uh, do anything about, just notice. If it's complicated, it's an object. So that has become one of my wisdom phrases to drop in now. If it's complicated, it's an object. My mind produces a lot of complications, so this one's very helpful for me. 
Um, so over time, we can begin to um, develop our own wisdom. And the perspectives that I'm talking about, the perspectives, an object is just an object, the uh, object is nature, uh, these become more um, integrated into our experience, our, our, our way of seeing things. So it's no longer borrowed. It's no longer even having to try to bring it in. There are times when it's just the natural perspective that we're seeing things with. Objects are just objects. This is nature. So we don't have to try to make anything, do anything with it. So this is the, the transformation of right view from being concept then being practiced with. You can kind of think of it in three stages. There's the concepts that we hear. This is Suttamaya Panya, the wisdom of listening, of hearing, of taking in from the outside. So there's this concept, and we, you know, we, we take that concept in, and we maybe reflect on it, think about, it, does this make sense to me? And then the, the middle area where we do a lot of our work is Chintamayapanya, the wisdom of intelligence, of thoughtfulness, of reflection. We use reflection, we bring these, this right view to bear on our experience. We use it to explore our experience, to support us to be more balanced around our experience. So this is Chintamayapanya. And the Bhavanamayapanya, the uh, third kind of insight, a third kind of wisdom is the wisdom of insight. The wisdom where we no longer have to try to bring it in. We no longer have to do anything to bring in that wisdom. But it more naturally is the perspective that we are seeing things from. This brings the third translation of Yatabhuta to mind for me as it actually is. So three translations of Yatabhuta, things as they are, things as they have come to be, as it actually is. When we can take in experience without resistance. Objects are just objects. This is nature. No reactivity in the mind. We are seeing experience as it actually is without our usual views, opinions, beliefs, biases, filters brought to bear on our experience. We're seeing things as they actually are. And this is the deepest kind of wisdom that we can live from. So I'll close with something Sayadaw says, a different view of our yogi jobs. Our work is with right attitude to maintain awareness, use intelligence, and be interested. Doesn't matter what's happening. Objects are objects. Recognize how we're relating to those objects as the path towards purifying right view. So let's just sit in silence for a few moments.
Thank you for your attention.